This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering three conversations from episode 47. Opinion leaders discuss big stories of summer. In this conversation, Michelle Long selects the publication of Stephen Harrison and Naeem Alcori's paper on prevalence in an unselected middle-aged population as her story of the summer. Michelle and I discuss some implications for the entire population of our country and the world, frankly, if conventional wisdom estimates are 50% too low. After which, Louise Campbell notes that society needs to be screening far more aggressively than we do now and proposes an innovative approach for how to do so. This episode is full of big thoughts and bold aspirations. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Roger Green. This conversation is with our good friend, Michelle Long, who's actually was with us at the beginning of summer, and now she gets to ring out summer with us as well. Michelle, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Roger? I'm doing fine, and Louise is still here. Uh, Louise, you were doing great 45 minutes ago. I'm hoping you still are. I'm absolutely fabulous now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, Louise and I are to a test because we're going to do the typical icebreaker, but we just did that with the in row 45 minutes ago, so now we have to come up with backup good news. For that reason, Michelle, I'm going to ask you to go first. One good thing has happened in the last couple of weeks. Great. Well, I have a milestone birthday coming up this year. And as a treat to myself, I've been training for a adventure weekend, which I'll be going to this upcoming weekend with two very dear friends going to Zion National Park in southern Utah. And in the ultimate irony, as I was exercising and getting ready for this milestone birthday, I injured myself like any budding 40-year-old would do. But good news is that I'm feeling better and I'm ready to go and um, very excited to spend some time in southern Utah which is one of my favorite places in the U.S. Fantastic. (laughs) I suppose I would have to say as a second best was my A team, which is Liverpool, beating my B team, which is my husband's A team, Crystal Palace 3-0. But Crystal Palace actually playing very well at Anfield. Although it's the one fixture either where Anfield or at Sellers Park that my husband and I, one of us is not going to be as happy as the other. We both quite enjoyed this one, but I came out victorious again. So that's my other happy moment of the week. My happiest moment might actually be that Louise didn't mention how badly Crystal Palace beat Tottenham, which was kind of like a drum. Um, Tottenham plays tomorrow, by the way, which is why oh, I couldn't I'd track this score. about that one. Can I re-record my favourite? <laughs> <laughs> No, we've not been good. I, I said this already, but I'm going to say it again. Michelle, we actually yesterday made top of the charts, top medical podcast in Macedonia for a day. We're number two today. We were number one yesterday. Nice. But we've never good been day. number one anywhere, even for a day. <laughs> and today, I think we're in the top 10 in three countries and uh, on the charts at 11. I um, was chatting with a friend of mine who is a blues artist who said the reason to do a Christmas album pre-Christmas is to get on billboards. So you've got bragging rights for life if you can get it out. So I think being number one in Macedonia is going to be our bragging right for at least a year or until we become number one somewhere else. And with that, Michelle, we're looking for stories about things that happened in summer that you think are really important for fatty liver community. Dive in. What do you want to think us on today? Well, Roger, as you know, I'm an epidemiologist. So I was really excited to see the paper from Stephen Harrison and Niam Akhori on the perspective evaluation of the prevalence of fatty liver disease and NASH and unselected 
middle-aged cohort. This is really exciting because we have such limited data, in particular on NASH. So it was really nice to see this well-done cohort come out that had a lot of really rich information. And I think we can take away a lot of important points. So this project had over 800 or so participants. These were people coming in for their screening colonoscopies and they offered them MRI PDFF. And then from there, they used the standard MRI PDFF cutoff of greater than or equal to 5% as being consistent with fatty liver after ruling out other potential causes of fatty liver and offered them biopsy. One thing that's really unique about this study is they didn't just stop there. They also looked at those that were less than 5% fat on the MRI PDFF. And as long as they had met criteria by another imaging modality, they also offered them biopsy. So that was something that really set this paper apart is that often you don't get to see the biopsies in those that didn't meet the first branch point. One takeaway point is that about 20% of people didn't want a biopsy. And that was pretty impressive how low it was. In clinical practice, I would say it's higher for me anyway. And so I think that's interesting. Just in and of itself sort of highlights the need. One out of five patients are not getting the biopsy that we are recommending. The need for us to get away from biopsy. And then they reviewed the biopsies and overall the prevalence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease was 37%, which is high and higher than in some other cohorts, especially unselected cohorts. In particular, those of Hispanic ethnicity, 55%. Prevalence of NAFLD, 57% among those that were obese, and 70% among diabetics. So those groups in particular are really standing out as higher risk. And then they went on to look at NASH. The overall prevalence of NASH was 14%, and that was out of everyone, including those that didn't get a biopsy. So if you looked at just among those that were biopsied, 37% had NASH. And so that tells us a few things. Prevalence of NASH, is higher than I think we all have thought. And also that MRI PDFF does a pretty good job of differentiating those and kind of identifying a higher risk group. When we go back and look at the biopsies of those that had an MRI PDFF of less than 5%, the prevalence of NASH was only 1.5%. Thinking specifically about NASH, again, we see diabetes as a major risk factor for prevalent NASH. 35% of people with diabetes had NASH and about 25% that were of Hispanic ethnicity, which I think speaks to genetic and probably some epigenetic associations with the Hispanic ethnicity. The other thing that was interesting and sort of reinforced in this paper is they looked at ALT to say, okay, what if we just said anyone with high ALT, what happened to them? How good was that at being able to identify NASH? And about 30% of those that had an ALT that was less than 40 still had NASH. So ALT is really not very good at identifying those that are higher risk. And even if we use the more conservative ALT cutoff of 19 and 30, it's still about 20% of people still had NASH, even if they were below those ALT thresholds for women and men. The bottom line is that we need better tools to identify high-risk patients. MRI PDFF did a nice job in this paper. And not only that, but I think we get a better picture of the prevalence of NASH in an unselected population that I think will help us understand the burden of disease that we're dealing with here. Thanks, Michelle. Yeah, that is a fantastic paper. We did an episode on that. And actually, Tony Villiotti, two weeks ago in the patient advocate version of this, he's also heavily about epidemiology, pointed out the same paper. He, he paired it with a paper I've been trying to find from hepatology communications about levels of awareness.
awareness mm. that suggested that you had single-digit levels of awareness of what we were talking about here, of NAFLD. But what was interesting in that paper, and I don't remember how they did the analysis, but they went through an NHANES database, and the number they got for NAFLD out of the NHANES database was 36.8. So, yeah, I'd never seen it before. I will find it because if that were a confirmatory 37 from a large secondary data source, it would reinforce the breadth of the facts behind Stephen and Naeem's work. Yeah. I think you're right. It's a very, very different world if a quarter of the population has NAFLD and a quarter of those have NASH as compared to a third of the population has NAFLD and a third has NASH. And if the numbers are 37 and 37, you know, the thing just keeps, the, the number of patients you're talking about keeps exploding on you. Yeah, absolutely. This sample from the Harrison paper was 20% black, 75% white, and 25% of Hispanic ethnicity. So it is relatively well representative, I think, of the diversity of our country. And I think these numbers are really staggering. And just to me, highlight the need to identify these patients. Once we have our therapies and available, this is the burden that we are going to be facing. We need to understand how to treat them best and how to find those that are most at risk for progressive disease. Louise, do you have anything you want to add? I love that paper and I enjoyed discussing it the other week. And I'd be interested, Michelle Brooke knows that as part of the work that I do is lifestyle and it's wellness and it's people who choose to come for a scan with no known history. They're not done. And I reviewed 58 of those patients because I've just brought up the data here. And of those 58 people who had their baseline scan 16 were female 18 were male in the steatosis and I, I was I was mainly interested in the cat nobody had NASH so for me it was the level of steatosis on the meta-analysis grading by Ecosense which is anything above 249 248 they use as below that that it's safe and above so I'm using their guidelines but overall we got 40 I think it was 41 percent of those patients had grade one steatosis or higher. And these are people who had no reason. They're just lifestyle. So I wonder whether or not if we were to do more generic incidents, and yes, there will be higher alcohol intake in some of those than not. But that general concept of how people just lead their general lives, if we say 41% of all people walking through the door actually have steatosis, they may or may not go on to get NASH, but you're going to be able to follow them to see. But also with the paper that was talking about baseline steatosis caught in cardiac disease and the mortality now that steatosis and simple steatosis can confer in a lifestyle, either for children. I think it was Tracy Simon's piece that was really, really concerning. And I think it was Naeem there that said, I'm going to change my dialogue with my patients that you've got a soft liver and it's fatty, so don't worry too much, to actually you've got a soft liver, but your fat content's too high. We need to do something. And how much? The evidence from Stephen's study and some of the others really, really do that from a clinical. These patients are in hospital for a reason, even if they're not fatty liver disease known. I think it's frightening the level of steatosis that could be out there because we're looking at select populations every time we look. It is a concern. How do you think we're really going to get to those populations? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Even Stephen's paper here, these are people who are engaged with care. They're coming in for a screening colonoscopy. So they already have some degree of 
engagement with care. And if we looked at all comers, we would see even more disease because they would potentially be, you know, there's probably healthy lifestyle behaviors that are associated with going to see your doctor and going to get your screening colonoscopy. In reality, those are the people that we have to treat. Those are the people that are coming to us. So that's who we have to deal with. But changing that dialogue with the patients you were talking about, getting out the public health message that this is really important and really focusing on changing lifestyles, changing behaviors while we await new medications. But that has to stay. That has to be out there. And we as hepatologists don't have to be the only ones delivering that message. That message should come from every physician that they see. And this is just another example, another reason to lose weight and to get healthy for a lot of our patients. Can I just ask, what do you think the level of education is within the endocrine population? I think Stephen's, I think you quoted 35% of those with type 2 diabetes had a problem. I just generally don't feel that level of education going in in endocrinology is high enough for patients. I don't see it in the patient charities. I don't see it on their websites. I don't see that general discussion because it appears to be stigmatised within their own population. And yet liver disease is a really big cause of mortality now in that group. Yeah, absolutely. That's an easy place to start. And we have, in at least the US Diabetes Association guidelines, really do support even screening for fatty liver. They're pretty aggressive about that, recognizing that people living with diabetes are a higher risk group. But their patients that have diabetes and their providers may be overwhelmed with, with taking care of their diabetes and they may not be thinking about it. This is something that I feel very strongly about. This is some of the work that I'm doing at Boston University is to try to address these knowledge gaps in providers as well, to try and improve adherence to those guidelines and of risk stratification for high-risk patients, particularly those with diabetes. So I'm with you. I, I really don't think that the education is there either from the provider standpoint or from the patient standpoint. So then, of course, the question is, so what changes that, right? Someone I was talking with today or yesterday made the comment that SGLT2s start going generic in three to five years, and that at that point, they will become what metformin became when it went generic, which is a first-line therapy for an awful lot of patients. And that has obviously impact on liver, which means, you know, and kidney, which means it has impact on the whole metabolic chain. So that's one thing. If semaglutide is one of the earlier agents to get approved, obviously that will have impact as well because Novo comes through that door. I guess I'm wondering what we can do today to make that happen. Mindful of the idea that insulin sensitization is a large part of the transition from NAFL to NASH. I wonder if there's something in all this that we can be doing now to motivate. Don't know, just asking. Yeah, I wish I had an answer (laughs) because... I do think that it's really alarming to kind of sit back and see these numbers that are so high that probably weren't as high even five years ago. We're seeing this get worse before our eyes. And I agree, you know, we really need to do something now about this. Although, Michelle, Stephen was pointing to a paper he did 10 years earlier that wasn't all that different in terms of the outcome. What data says it's gotten worse? And are there specific populations in which that's happened? Yeah, we have such limited data that it's frustrating. This is one of the largest, if not the largest study of biopsy patients that are an unselected population. So it's really exciting. So we don't really have a lot to compare it to, have a real lack of longitudinal data. And we have seen some of these numbers before, particularly the high levels of NASH among those with diabetes, but they haven't always been reproduced. So it's a little hard to say why that is and how overlapping are these populations. 
populations. But the fact of the matter is, is that we continue to see worsening obesity in our country. And along with that, I'm only guessing, I'm only assuming that NASH is also getting worse. Makes sense. What feels like the logical next step. We can learn from this paper about different modalities to risk stratify patients or identify high-risk patients. MRI, PDFF did what performed well in this paper, but obviously it's not available everywhere. From reading their methods, I think everyone got a fiber scan in this study as well. So it'd be really interesting to see, I assume they're planning that analysis as well, to look at a fiber scan cutoff and see how well that that did, because that's just so much easier to do for most providers, although it's still not widely available. Other tools that can easily risk stratify patients are needed. Papers like this that show us how well does FIB4 do or NAFL fibrosis score or other kind of simple blood-based scoring systems would be helpful to see how well are they kind of differentiating. And there have been other studies that have done that, but not every center has access to these tools. And when we're talking about such a large population at risk, we need to figure out a way to make risk stratification accessible to our patients across care access. And that's still an outstanding challenge. Louise, how do we we address that challenge, do you think? Well, there's an easy question to answer at this time of night. I think Michelle's got a point there. Stephen has, and I think, although FibroScan, for example, and it'd be interesting to see the comparison data on that, it isn't beyond reason to say that endoscopy in any way, shape or form is often going to be looking at high risk of what we would consider high risk patients by the nature of endoscopy. There is... With the fiber scan technology that we have available today and smart exam and things like that, making it more and more effective on CAP, these patients are generally all fasted. There is no reason that as you go into endoscopy, you shouldn't routinely be fiber scanned and combine two tests in the area. You're saving patient time. You're combining high risk patients. You're, you're already there. You've already got staff. It's easily movable and transferable between rooms. It runs off a battery. Use what it's designed for to actually help the practice that we've got. So the more we can combine for a patient, the more likely they are to engage because they're coming, being done and going. If you keep a patient four, five, six times, make errors, fail to get their bloods, do X, Y, and Z, they disengage. So the more we can do in the areas that we have high-risk patients at the same time would be a great thing. And if you can combine somebody from endocrinology and hepatology all coming into the same environment and combine our tests, which is the big advantage of not silo healthcare, because we know healthcare is very siloed. We need to be more savvy because patients will disengage and we're losing them. And those patients who disengage are at risk. So there's things we can put in. It's not just endoscopy. Postmenopausal women are now the biggest cause of liver transplantation in that age group is fatty liver disease. I'm not aware yet that we've screened women who become menopausal and then postmenopausal fatty liver disease. So there are things that we can do with higher risk populations that we need to just be a little bit more creative and inventive. Stephen's study showed how it can be done in an endoscopy environment with high-risk patients. That's interesting because and one of the things I think about when you talk about menopausal, postmenopausal women is that they may be slightly easier to reach and educate than some of the other population segments we talked about. Low-lying fruit has two benefits. Number one is it starts to solve the problem and number two is it motivates people to do what's harder. So that's really an interesting place to address the issue. Well, Stephen goes on about podiatry as well. They're all prescribing fungal antifungals yeah. for God knows what. Mm-hmm. So um, <laughs> there, we can be inventive, but at the moment we're quite constrained as to where we see liver disease and being 
being a liver nurse. I've actually gone to liver health rather than liver disease. A lot of people do not need to get liver disease if we address liver health. That's just where I'm trying to come from both sides, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Although going back to the epidemiology side of things and the number side of things, which is where I live, if 38% of the population has this problem, that means a decent chunk of just about everybody. You know, so in a lower incidence subpopulation, you're down to 20 or 25. Well, that's, that's, we thought 25 was a big number when we thought that was the total population. Exactly. Okay. As we get to the half hour mark, which we just kind of slid past neatly, Michelle, one thought you would like listeners to take away from this conversation that they can do something with. Thinking about which patients are at high risk, whether they're coming in to see you for diabetes care, liver health, cardiovascular disease, whatever the reason why you're seeing patients, thinking about fatty liver as an important condition that could potentially be impacting our patients, thinking about persons that with diabetes or who are obese or perhaps who are of Hispanic ethnicity, that they may be higher risk. And remembering that simple things like ALT are really not sufficient to risk stratify patients. So you have to be deliberate about evaluating the liver using more sophisticated tools, whether that be imaging or some blood-based markers that we have, like FIB4, things like that. That's a good point. I, I have a fantasy that we can teach a cadre of word police to hang out in physician offices all over America and find people $20 when they use the word liver function test to define ALT and AST as compared to liver <laughs> enzymes. I think that would be a huge start. And the money can actually be donated to screening patients, figuring out who has fatty liver disease, right? So that would be a win-win. I guess my takeaway, first of all, is we can't ever get complacent about the urgency of this issue because of the population size we're talking about, number one. But number two, I like Louise's comment that if we think about the patient groups differently, we might find targets that are easier to address that we've not thought of. And then, Michelle, finally, to go back to the point you just made, if we're going to go to the obvious targets, we need to figure out how to address them in ways that are culturally appropriate. I'm not going to go into detail on this because I don't know if the details, but one of the classic health communication stories in the U.S. in the last quarter of the 20th century was Hispanic women and mammography, where it took them a long time to figure out how to make the message fit with the woman's life, which is don't make it about the woman, make it about everyone who depends on her. We need to think about how to make this effort affirmative and not threatening to the things people love and hold dear. So thank you for a great conversation and good luck on your sentinel birthday and getting to do everything you want to do in Southern Utah. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Great. Stay safe. Yeah. And don't get injured. No more injuries. Yeah. Thank you. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the contents of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next Wednesday, September 29th, with our next episode. I hope you will join us then. And until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.